Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, May 18th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Roger Ailes skillfully exploited a market opportunity and unskillfully exploited women. He was a fighter for his causes and a propagandist. He was a success and a horror. He was quintessentially American which we should all do well to remember. On the show today, I will interview Isaac Chotner, who's a sharp observer of all things Al's, and almost all Al's was awful. Now, Isaac doesn't mince words, nor should he, but I do think a lot of the commentary about Al's passing misses the point. Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone had an article headline, Roger Al's was one of the worst Americans ever. Really, more than everyone who owns slaves, which is to say most of the people on the money, or like murderers, might that count as evil? See, and I do pursue this with Isaac, I think every bad thing that Ailes was is because Americans allowed him to be bad, enabled him to be bad, hell, rewarded him. There is a certain narcissism to saying Ailes was the worst thing. It's just that his loathsomeness was annoying to you because it was on TV all the time. It was in your face and it drove you crazy. It was not only obnoxious, but it was also discomforting proof that your fellow countrymen, maybe your fellow family members, were dupes. Let's look at the subhead of that Taibbi piece. Fox News founder made this the hate-filled, moronic country it is today. Well, first of all, I think progress has been made. We've gained much more since 1996 when Ailes started Fox. We've gained much more than we've lost. Maybe I'm an optimist, but I think the facts bear me out. But I understand the point that America's bad, Fox is leading it down the primrose path. In fact, you could say it wasn't just that Ailes annoyed me, it's that he shaped policy. Bad policy. We could have cap and trade or at least some effective climate change legislation were it not for Ailes. So I investigated this. Pew, an excellent source, impeccable, would never get booked on Fox. They gathered up international surveys and they figured how concerned with global climate change populations of different countries were. And America doesn't do very good on this. Uh, we're about 8.78 level, what they call the level of concern, the concern index. It goes from three to 12. is, you know, two-thirds of the way there, but arguably we should be much closer to 12. However, Canada, 
where the number one news station most watched is the CBC, very respectable CBC. Their concern index is 9.45. That's not much higher than the United States, and they're unsullied by Fox News. And Israel is also really close, slightly, slightly more concerned than the United States. There's no Fox News there. But Australia where they never had ales, they did have Murdoch, but not ales, Australia's actually less concerned about climate change than the United States. So it's not all ales. And even when it is all ales, it's also all us. And by us, I, of course, do not mean you and I, but I do mean those people we're supposed to feel kinship toward, fellowship with, sympathy for. And listen, make no mistake, I think Roger Ailes was irredeemable, irredeemable, but some perspective. The horrible things about Roger Ailes are the horrible things about your fellow Americans, plus a whole lot of sexual harassment. That too. On the show today, I spiel about three leaders, a little bit of a conceit to talk about three people. One of the leaders is Alex Jones, so I'm kind of stretching the definition. Then we'll be rejoined for the first time in a long time by our cocktail expert, Pete Fornatel. He'll join us in a bar because Pete's also a horse racing expert. The Preakness is coming up. So he'll recommend some drinks and we'll maybe talk some horses, but more about the drinks. But first, here's that interview with Isaac Chotner, all about Roger Ailes, his legacy, and what he leaves behind. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Roger Ailes is dead after a fall that is both literal and figurative. The 77-year-old impresario behind Fox News, a former Republican consultant who took a network and changed a culture and a conversation, has died. Isaac Chotner has written about Roger Ailes and Fox over the years many, many times. He's a Slate staff writer, and his podcast is I Have to Ask. Hi, Isaac. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How important was Roger Ailes? Roger Ailes was extremely important, and I think when people look back on the last several decades of American history, Roger Ailes will go down as one of the seminal figures. That may sound like overstating things, but the media climate he created, the media environment he created uh, by running Fox News and putting his imprimatur on the network, which he founded with Rupert Murdoch several decades ago, two decades ago, is, I think, a legacy that we're still living with in no larger way than the fact that without Fox News, I think Donald Trump would not be president today. 
But without Roger Ailes, would there be Fox News? I mean, that's my big question. Obviously, it wouldn't be exactly the same. And and he should, of course, get credit or discredit, depending on uh, what you think of Fox News or facts. But here's the premise I want to test. There seemed to be such a ripe opportunity for a, net, a network of this stripe. Uh, the fact that it was so successful, though his first foray into it, America's Talking, wasn't exactly... It would perhaps argue, and it's a counterfactual, that if not Roger Ailes, someone would have come along and done something like it and made a lot of money. Uh, Why is either that wrong or maybe you could say that maybe they would have, but it wouldn't have been as pernicious as Fox News is? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mean, you're obviously right. There's always money to be made off the prejudices and resentments of Americans or whatever, you know, in whatever society you're talking about. And there are always people who are going to come along and make that money. And so, you know, you see now there's Breitbart, there's the Drudge Report, there are all these websites and so on. There's the One America Network, which is like an even further right version of Fox News, or so I'm told by people who watch it. But I think Roger Ailes, his genius as a television executive and the way he branded Fox News, the way he, the hires he made, people like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, the way he sort of, the, the way he, he dealt with Republican politicians, the influence he had with them, the way he sort of enforced discipline within the Republican Party, all of these things made Fox News more powerful than any other conservative news network by a long shot. And I think a lot of that owes to Ailes' both television genius and connections. I mean, when you think about someone like Trump, who Fox promoted for a very long time, it was partially because Ailes and Trump had a longstanding relationship going back, you know, several decades that Trump became such a fixture on Fox News and the Fox News audience was such a crucial part of his base. How much credit does Rupert Murdoch get? Do you think that someone could have created a money-making conservative TV network that would satisfy Rupert and it would be less important or less, what do I want to say, less toxic than Fox News is? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that's interesting about Ailes and I think one aspect of his importance is that Rupert was very, very, very nice to Ailes and always kind of went out of his way to please him. You know, Gabe Sherman, who's kind of the preeminent reporter about Ailes and Fox News, sort of has suggested that Rupert was almost a little scared of Ailes. And I think that Ailes' particular power, you know, in some ways came from the fact that Murdoch gave him this power. And so it's hard to imagine any other person getting that power from someone like Rupert Murdoch. Of course, Rupert Murdoch owns media properties in the UK. He owns them in Australia. He owns other media properties in the United States. And obviously, some of these properties are very toxic, as we saw with the the phone hacking scandal in Britain. So, of course, Rupert Murdoch was always going to have his effect on American culture, just like he has the cultures of Britain. But I I do think Ailes was a unique talent who exerted unique force, both on Murdoch and, and conservative media at large. What I do want to say, though, in terms of Ailes' specific power that I do think is different is that Ailes has an ideology that is different from Rupert Murdoch's and different from Rupert Murdoch's other media properties. Yes, it's true that Murdoch sort of gleefully went along with Brexit, but most of Rupert's media properties, or many of them, are considered sort of pro-immigration. They don't go at the same populist sticking points that became kind of central to Fox News. Now, of course, some of them do. I'm not, of course, defending them. But Fox was very specifically about Ailes' resentments and his fears and things about immigrants, about Muslims, about terrorism, things that Murdoch has never really shown an interest in. And all of these things that I've just mentioned, I'm sure everyone listening knows, are big aspects of Trump's 
political ideology, if you want to call it that. And so I think that Trump is a very, very alien figure, if I can coin a word. And so I do think that Trump in particular, the reason that Ailes gave him such constant airtime on Fox was largely because they shared an ideology that is different than Murdoch and different than Rupert's property. So Fox could have elected or help elect a Republican president. And, you know, there were going to be Republican presidents, and I'm sure Fox would have played a role in helping elect them. But someone like Donald Trump, I really think, goes a lot to Ailes. Um, Ray Kroc, Henry Ford, Roger Ailes, these, to me, are guys in a similar category. They saw uh, a market that could be exploited. They did exploit it. They didn't really care about the people who they heard along the way. They all have right-wing politics. Now, it's just that Ailes, his particular stock and trade, his field was the field of journalism. And you and I are journalists and we care about it. Plus, you know, that that's the field that's mentioned in the Constitution, right? Not uh, hamburgers and cars. But those other two guys, I think historians will say to some extent they were bad, but I don't know that when they died, they're getting the grave dancing that Roger Ailes is engendering, uh, except for people on the far right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I know nothing about Ray Kroc and not very much about Henry Ford, so I can't say what's deserved. But Ailes, aside from inserting these toxic things into our culture, or, we, or I should say, exacerbating these toxic uh, aspects of our culture was also an absolutely disgusting individual who sexually harassed tens and tens of women. I mean, I don't even know what the final count is. Um, You know, I think that's over 50 women came forward and said they were harassed by him in, in the most disgusting manner. And Ailes is, is really a grotesque figure. And I, you know, aside from the, aside from the racism and the Islamophobia and the immigrant bashing and all these things, which, he put on the air and clearly felt based on reports about who he was as a person. He was just a vile, vile man and uh, should be remembered for that as well as his larger legacy in the culture. Where do you see Fox going without Al's? That's a really good question. You know, um, MSNBC has started beating Fox in the ratings lately. And I think that has more to do with the fact that, you know, there's a Republican president, he's under siege, liberals are excited and so MSNBC was always going to get bigger ratings than, you know, than they were six months ago or a year ago. But I actually think it's, it's a bit of a problem. I mean, I, I wrote a piece for Slate, which I somewhat wish I could take back, saying Fox News would be fine without Ailes because they had the winning formula. But I think the Ailes scandal, which also kind of in its ramifications helped bring down their top-rated anchor, Bill O'Reilly, and also, I think, probably contributed the decision to their second highest rated anchor, Megyn Kelly, leaving the network for NBC, means that they are struggling. I mean, Tucker Carlson, who took over O'Reilly's show, is, you know, a guy who's had about 12 different news shows, all of which has failed. I mean, he's clearly doing better because Fox has a built-in audience, but I don't think he's a great answer for the, you know, the anchor of your primetime lineup. So I think they are going to have some trouble. And the biggest question for Fox going forward, just to go back to the Murdochs, is that Rupert is, you know, 85 or whatever he is. And his sons, at least if the reporting is correct, want to move the network in a bit of a different direction. I mean, I think that they're probably both fairly conservative, but they are apparently, especially his son James, a bit embarrassed by the network's content. So at some point, if Rupert gives up control of the network or retires or whatever, I think that's the big question is how the brothers try to lead Fox in a way that preserves the money making that Ailes began 
while also hopefully for, I guess, for society at large, as well as for their own reputations, try to make it a little less of a conspiracy mongering news channel. Isaac, I want to ask you one more thing. A few months ago, Alan Combs died, and you wrote a really good uh, obituary or analysis. The headline, uh, I probably got headlines because it was sharp and uh, called him to account, let's say. Now, a lot of people who, for whom uh, Roger Ailes is a, is a familiar name and a loathed one are doing what one does on social media to some degree celebrating, mocking him, et cetera. Do you have any advice for them? I understand the catharsis aspect of it, but what's the best thing to do? What's the best strategy? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. I I understand why if you're a friend or a family member of someone who passes away, even if they've done bad things, why you don't want to hear criticism of them or why that could be painful. But, you know, I also think that there is a limit and whatever that limit is, or a line, I should say, Roger L. certainly passed it. I can try to think of an argument why people should not be, let's say, not sad about his death no. and why they, sh- but I can't come up with one. I mean, the guy, the guy was just an absolute monster. And um, if his family feels bad that people are celebrating, I take no pleasure in their pain, but I, I certainly would not tell people to... Uh, react any way other than how they're feeling uh, about this. Isaac Chotner is a writer for Slate. He's written about Roger Ailes a lot, and he also hosts uh, an excellent podcast called I Have to Ask. Thank you, Isaac. Thanks, Mike. So maybe you could tell we are not in our regular studio. We're at a bar named the Grand Army, or just probably Grand Army, no the. And I'm here with our old friend, Peter Fornatel. He's the author or co-author of Brooklyn Spirits, Craft Distilling and Cocktails from the World's Hippest Borough. And we've interviewed you a couple times, Pete, but never while Slate was actually in the World's Hippest Borough. So this is the first time we're interviewing the Brooklyn spirits guy in brooklyn so thanks for doing this i'm i'm glad because i felt a little disloyal before when we were talking cocktails and you actually made me go across into manhattan which i generally attempt to avoid like the plague but much better to be here as a home game for me yeah Uh, your powers are strongest here as are some of these cocktails so what i wanted to do as our theme is that is a triple crown of cocktails um horse racing is associated with cocktails and you're a big horse racing expert in fact that's your day job. I wanted to marry the two. We just had the Kentucky Derby. We're on the dawn of the Preakness, and then, of course, the Belmont. Now, the Kentucky Derby, mint julep is the official cocktail there? The mint julep is the official cocktail. In recent years, they have introduced a secondary cocktail, some sort of pink vodka-based concoction uh, known as a lily, which I, I don't know. I guess that's for the people who don't like whiskey. They can now drink the, the lily. But no one is going to confuse that as taking the place of the real cocktail of the Derby, and that's the mint julep. You've got one there in your hand, in fact. So I am drinking a mint julep. Lots of mint. Smells great. What is, what's the julep part? Well, a mint julep, traditionally, and I believe the way uh, our man uh, Damon Bolte, the bartender here and uh, one of the owners of Grand Army, made it, it's a very simple drink. Simple syrup, just a blend of sugar and water. 
mint to, to line the glass. And then the other things that are unique about it, they're typically served in a julep tin. You have a beautiful gold julep tin there. And, of course, uh, mint protruding out of the glass and also uh, cracked ice. The cracked ice is key to get the dilution just right in the drink and, uh, and bring the whole thing together. And also, here at Grand Army, when you order one, you get a decorative straw that enhances the experience as well. I find that most horse racing cocktails have the quality of they're sweet, you drink three or four of them, it's a hot May day, and then you regret it. <laughs> well, you know, the racetrack occasionally does lend itself to regret, whether it's uh, paramutually or uh, by drinking too much. But like with all things, with moderation, you keep it together, it can really enhance the experience. But probably a good idea with those juleps. You have one or two of those and then reach for one of the fine beers here on tap. So this, this was great. Now let's move on to the second jewel of racing's drinking crown. Now, this is the Preakness, and they serve a drink called the Black-Eyed Susan. I I got a couple questions. This is a real drink. I mean, mint juleps, I've heard of. Is it only a Preakness drink? And what's the uh, Black-Eyed Susan based on? Can we pivot off that and have a Black-Eyed Susan-esque drink? Sure, that's a good idea. Uh, The Black-Eyed Susan, I've never seen it in the wild. It's something, as far as I know, it only exists in watered-down versions at Pimlico on the day or maybe the day before. The recipes I've seen online for it, they just they, they sort of reek of a drink that you'd never uh, get in a place like this or another place that really knew its onions when it came to cocktails. Sort of an odd combination of things that reads a little sweet looking at the recipe. It's been a long time since I had one. The name derives, I don't know if you know about the name of the Black Eyed Susan, that's the blanket of flowers that uh, is draped over the winter. Um, I, I believe I, I can... I believe I could do this. The three flowers, the derbies, of course, the run for the roses. Then you got the black-eyed Susan. And then the third, the Belmont, that would be the state flower of New York, the carnation. Ding, ding, ding. Good stuff. Good stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I think if you want to go in a drink direction, we should probably ask ask Damon to improvise off some of the basic elements. Okay. Let's do it. Let's dragoon Damon. Damon, you are. Introduce yourself and tell us what you do here. Hi, Damon Bolte, um, one of the proprietors of Grand Army and head bartender. Um, yeah, I make cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> and, and should I ask, but you did sing bass with the Oak Ridge Boys, or no? Mbapa, mbapa, mow, mow. He's having to do that. Okay. I mean, the, the Black Eyed Susan has whiskey and vodka, and it's like orange juice and sour mix and all this stuff, and peach tree. Yeah. So I think we should go with, uh, let's go with the actual Preakness cocktail. So the Preakness is basically, it's a rye whiskey, sweet vermouth, Benedictine and Angostura bitters. It's, it's a very classy drink, very old school uh, in style. So let's make one of those. So while we have you, Pete, I want to ask you, I think, you know, the, the Triple Crown was won. And that was always held out as, well, this will rejuvenate horse racing. I think that it was a wonderful event. I'll always remember where I was when I, when I saw it won. But, you know, what has it really done for the sport? For me, it's one of those things where it's going to be very hard to find like a quick causal connection. The, the idea that American Pharaoh was somehow going to magically save the sport was always a bit naive. But where I think you could see it having its effect is just in keeping racing in the popular consciousness and also uh, inspiring perhaps a generation of much younger fans who are now going to grow up with this great memory of racing and help keep it um, its place in the sporting landscape. 
it's not the kind of thing where, oh, that horse won, so now the, the handle, the amount bet on races is going to be higher. Much more the idea of just wonderful to have racing on the cover of Sports Illustrated and perhaps christening a new generation of fans. All right. That was our sporting interlude. Here we have a Preakness. To me, this is the sort of drink that in the, in the 1960s, before they thought drinks should you know, taste like candy and they thought drinks should taste like drinks but still be good, this is the sort of drink one would have. Great Manhattan variation. I would, I would say this. Unlike the mint julep, which uh, bowls you over with the uh, refreshingness, I don't think someone could go in for four of those at the track. If you want something to have uh, as to prime the pump before you're uh, going to have your dinner, uh, give me the Preakness every time. Pete Fornatel. Oh, you know him from this show. He's the author of Brooklyn Spirits, Craft Distilling and Cocktails from the World's Hippest Borough. Also, his podcast is called The DRF Players. That's a daily racing forum. Because like I said, he's a racing expert. Thank you, Pete. Cheers. And if you want to learn more about how to make those drinks, though not as well as the bartender at Grand Army, go to slate.com slash the gist. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now the spiel. Three leaders. The first is the leader, or at least the king, of the Netherlands. You know what he does and has been doing for decades? Is it flooding the Dutch plains to repel French invaders under the rule of Louis XIV? No, you're thinking of William of Orange, William III. No, I'm talking about the current king, Willem Alexander, or as you may have heard him, uh, this is your regent speaking. Yes, the king is an airline pilot. Uh, out the left side window, you should be able to get a peek of the lands over which I hold dominion. Also, the in-flight movie is Paul Blart Mall Cop. We need this in U.S. aviation. Why do I have to give up my seat? She's a licensed service ostrich. And if I want to take off my shoes and socks, I paid for the seat. I'm sorry, sir. There are FAA regulations. Oh, yeah. Who's going to enforce them? Who? What government bureaucrat is behind these regulations? Actually, sir, we have him on board. Uh, he's the king. <laughs> Your majesty. Yes, hello. I'm the king. I'm your king. I'm uh, here to ask you to put your shoes and socks back on. And let me tell you a quick story about Dutch history. This is someone who once pissed off an ancestor of mine, William the Silent. He had my job. Okay. Uh, the guy's name was Balthazar Gerard, and he was tortured. Uh, he was hung on a pole and lashed with a whip. After that, his wounds were smeared with honey, and a goat was brought to lick the honey off his skin with a rough tongue. By the way, the goat refused to touch the body of the sentence. After this, he was left to pass the night with his hands and feet bound together like a ball. Then he was repeatedly mocked and hung on a pole with his hands tied behind his back. Yeah, that's right. I said he was mocked. Then a 300-pound ball was attached to each of his big toes for a half an hour. After a half hour, he was fitted with shoes of, quote, well-oiled, uncured dog skin. The shoes were shorter than his feet. Then he was put in a fire. When the shoes warmed up, I think you know what I'm going to say. They contracted 
crushing his feet inside of them. The shoes were removed. His half-broiled skin was torn off. After his feet were damaged, his armpits were branded. And after that, he was dressed in a shirt soaked in alcohol. The burning bacon fat was poured over him and sharp nails were stuck between the flesh and nails of his hands and feet. So could you please put your shoes back on? Now, the second leader I would like to talk about is um, something of a thought leader. He's Alex Jones, conservative thought leader Alex Jones. The InfoWars radio host had to formally apologize for denigrating yogurt. I do not want to even mention what he was saying was in the yogurt or how the yogurt came about to being. Remember the Comet Ping Pong pizza thing? Yeah, it was the same deal with the yogurt. Alex Jones always come back to the sex ring. All right, so the lawsuit was resolved. But, you know, it gives me this idea And I don't know how long Alex Jones is going to keep on doing it. He needs to come up with some extra income streams. He's not going to do product endorsements. But what about hiring Alex Jones to denigrate the products of a rival? The Jones marketing arm will come up with a crazy-ass rumor specifically suited to bring down a pesky competitor. Mouse found in a bottle of Coke? Child's play. How about a chlamydia-ravaged Tasmanian devil found gnawing off his own face in every third package delivered by Amazon? It's true. It's true. I heard about that. Now you're learning the Jones difference. Rice pudding? Hardly. That's not rice, it's sarin. Cashew cereal, healthy alternative to frosted flakes, think again. It's actually laced with a toxic nerve agent that might turn you Latino. Got a business that just can't quite become the market leader? The Alex Jones marketing plan could be the icing on the cake. That's not icing. That's rhinoceros placenta used in a bizarre sex ritual overseen by Nancy Pelosi. And finally, final leader, President Trump, here he is speaking to graduates of the Coast Guard Academy. You have to put your head down and fight, fight, fight. Never, ever, ever give up. Things will work out just fine. Look at the way I've been treated lately. Especially by the media. No politician in history... And I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. I am, in fact, a certain that your surety is warrantful, Mr. President. And I'm also sure that this speech will serve its purpose. By its purpose, I don't mean anything about the special counsel and being in cahoots with the Russians. I mean the real purpose, inspiring the Coast Guard to fight, fight, fight. This is a pep talk, and I just know that in 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, the cadets who heard those words will recall them fondly. I remember one time we were guarding the coast. We were doing a pretty good job. The coast was still there. But then a suggestion came up in our unit. Maybe if we didn't guard the coast, the coast would be fine on its own. We thought about this, and I said no. No, a Coast Guard always fights. Thanks, Mr. Trump. I remember we were looking for a lost shrimper down in the Florida Keys. And then we got a call that the same weather system that had sucked it down had also capsized a medium garlic and olive oil barge. It seemed like the entire shrimp scampi crop would be lost. I was going to give up, but I didn't give up because of Trump and the media. Yeah, I've been in the Coast Guard 20 years, and sometimes people don't get or understand the Coast Guard. 
making that same lame joke about guarding coasts. And I thought about not correcting those people, about just giving up. But then I remember when our president so hurtfully, though accurately, was accused of being in cahoots with the Russians. And I grew strong. And that is why I say here today that this is not the Coast Guard theme. This is the Marine hymn. Let it go. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson enjoys a Dutch uncle. The cocktail is made with Geneva gin, a dollop of honey, and you have to let it be licked by a goat overnight. Chris Berube, just producer, enjoys the filthy Canadian, two parts Canadian club, one part olive oil juice, line the rim with Alberta tar sands. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He goes in for the foxy and friends lady. So it's a regular foxy lady, amaretto, brown creme de coco, uh, an ounce of cream, but you shake it so much it leaves the show and sues you. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, enjoys the Alex Jones. It's a tablespoon of yogurt, fresh squeezed juice box, two shots of tequila, drink 11 or 12 of them, and then conduct a live radio show. The gist, might I offer you the Rogers Nails. It's a rusty nail, Drambouille and scotch, garnished with a piece of escargot, served in a bread bowl, best enjoyed in cold weather, usually during the war on Christmas. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.